Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One. Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The nineteen sixteen. To the Franco-Dutch War of sixteen seventy-two. This is When Diplomacy Fails remastered. This is the second part of When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the Franco-Prussian War, which originally aired as one episode on the 22nd of May, 2012. Welcome back to our remastered look at the Franco-Prussian War. Last time we set the scene and outlined why both France and Prussia needed the other party to declare war first, and how months of diplomatic dancing led to the state of affairs in early summer 1870 when war seemed on the verge of erupting. At the head of one empire was a desperate emperor, determined to resurrect his regime and stamp out the upstart across the Rhine, while the chancellor of the other party was a scheming, calculating and patient Bismarck eager to goad Napoleon III into war for the sake of his plans to unify Germany under Prussian rule, with he at its head of affairs. It's time to see where this story went next. I will now take you to May 1870. 
The great questions of the day will not be settled by means of speeches and majority decisions, but by iron and blood. Otto von Bismarck In May 1870, Napoleon III of France appointed Duke Antoine de Gramont as foreign minister. Gramont believed that, if he could not goad Prussia into declaring war, then he would at least find something, anything, that would cause enough outcry in France that the French people themselves were declaring war before the statesmen. That was his goal anyway, and then in June 1870, Baron Karl von Werther, Prussia's ambassador to France, was confronted by an outraged Gramont in Paris, and when Werther asked why Gramont was so upset, he was told that Bismarck had been dabbling secretly in European affairs which were none of his concern, more specifically in Napoleon's Spanish interests. The curious story of Spain and its impact on the Franco-Prussian War begins, actually, in 1868, with the deposing of Queen Isabella II of Spain. The interim government searched Europe for a replacement, someone to establish a new dynasty in Spain in place of the deeply unpopular Isabella. They found it, fantastically enough, when in May of 1870 they chose the nephew of the Prussian king, a man named Prince Leopold von Hohenzollern, for the job. On receiving this news, Bismarck believed he finally possessed the inflammatory stick he had been so long searching for. It was almost like Spain had no idea what the state of affairs was between France and Prussia. It'd be like interrupting an argument between two strangers and asking one of them to rule you and then waiting to see the look on the other's face. Well, it would be almost like that, except Bismarck kept it on the down low, for a while at least, until he decided that it really would be wise to accept. He told Prince Leo to approve the nomination by appealing to his patriotism and thirst for power. It should be remembered that at this time, Spain wasn't exactly the place to be for a monarch in Europe. Isabella's story kind of testifies to that. You see, Spain had a reputation for running their monarchs out of town, and Prince Leopold's father, the William I of Prussia's brother, didn't want his family to risk going through the embarrassment or scandal involved in being kicked out of Spain, even though it happened, like, a lot. Leo's father took some convincing, but eventually Leo's ascension to the Spanish throne was approved, and that brings us back to two weeks later on July the 2nd, to the scene with the angry French foreign minister. So now you understand the background to the whole Spanish situation, the ensuing chaos should be easy enough to follow. Bismarck, the sly fox he was, leaked the news of Leo's new job to the press, every press in Europe. If French people felt like Prussia had disrespected France in the past, then this recent act was intolerable. The image of France surrounded to the east and south by Germans played havoc with the French imagination and calls for Napoleon to act grew to deafening levels. However, also in the surprised camp in Europe was Prince Leopold's uncle, the Prussian king Wilhelm. Upon learning of the events and scandal unfolding in Europe, the Prussian king remarked, fantastically, I owe this mess to Bismarck. He has cooked it up like so many others. Back in France, the foreign minister Gramont told the chamber that such a situation would not be tolerated in Europe and that Leo must refuse the nomination or else. The Prussian king hesitated. Bismarck at this stage was holidaying in his residence at Varzen, but began moving with all haste to offer his king advice once he heard of the French demands. Yeah, I don't know why he chose that moment to go on holiday either, but before Bismarck could even reach him, 
A certain distressed Prussian king, Wilhelm I, had already demanded that Leo refuse the Spanish nomination in order to defuse the situation. This came at an unfortunate time for Bismarck's plans, because by now France was literally begging for war. Bismarck knew the French government would have been this close from declaring it. The French people were on the streets of Paris singing war songs. Now was as good a time as any to let events unfold. With his king's orders strictly and firmly given to his nephew, though, and Prince Leo thus scared away from the whole venture, there was little the Prussian Chancellor could do to turn the situation to his favour. Bismarck's mood soured when he learned of his king's orders because he knew that Napoleon could claim it as a victory, a result which would arouse intense humiliation. Faced with such an eventuality, Bismarck contemplated resigning. But then Napoleon overstepped, although this wasn't entirely his fault. The French people, upon learning of Prussia's backing down, were disappointed that war would not be happening. The disappointment was so great, in fact, that Napoleon wondered at it to his generals. The country is disappointed, yes, but what can we do? But Napoleon knew exactly what to do. Feigning dissatisfaction with the Prussian appeasement, he decided to force the issue to get more satisfaction for France. He demanded that Prussia would never in future allow Leo to become King of Spain, and that Leo assure him personally that he would rescind all of his claims to the Spanish throne permanently. The point is, Napoleon didn't realistically expect Prussia to comply to this demand, since essentially all Napoleon was doing was rubbing their appeasement back in their faces. Wilhelm was accosted by a German diplomat delivering the French demands for Prussian compliance. Such intrusion irritated Wilhelm and he waved the diplomat away. When Wilhelm then sent a message to Berlin recalling the events, Bismarck edited it artfully. So skillfully did he edit the document that, simply by removing some words, he made the document cause outcry in both Prussia and France. This document became known as the Ems Dispatch because of Wilhelm's residence at Bad Ems, his retreat, at the time of sending it. When French Prime Minister Emile Olivier got hold of the edited dispatch, he saw its disrespectful language and its disregard for French demands. Olivier believed that he had the casus belli. Surely the French would not allow this response to pass unchallenged. The French people would surely snap and declare a brilliant unifying war that would undo all of Napoleon's bad press and then endear the nation to him. But Olivier would encounter a surprising stumbling block the French Republican Party. The French Republicans were committed to essentially a regime change, or at the very least a dramatic curbing of Napoleon's imperial powers, and so their influence had to be reduced at all costs. A successful war would surely see an upturn in Napoleon's popularity and thus a downturn in theirs, yet Olivier's case for convincing them to approve war based on a disrespectful document became harder still when he, for some reason, read out the original unedited dispatch. French Republicans could clearly see that Bismarck was trying to manipulate France into war, but Olivier evidently did not care at this stage. Napoleon's grip on power was hanging by a thread, and he needed war now, and he needed Olivier to deliver. Besides, the French people supported war, didn't they? So what's the problem? Republican anger was directed not at Prussia, but at Olivier. You are deceiving us! shouted the Republican leader, Leon Gambetta, hoodwinking us with extracts and illusions. Another Republican, Emmanuel Arago, added, 
Indeed, if you make war on this basis, it is because you want war at any price. They were right, of course. Olivier did want war at any price. But most importantly, so did the majority of the French people. They hungered for war and despite the Republican politicians' protests, all sense and reason was drowned out by the French nation's collective calls for war. Olivier's appeals to the Republican sense of patriotism then fell on deaf ears, but it had become increasingly clear that French citizens had made the war their own, and saw it not as something to debate, but something to engage in for the sake of national honour and prestige, qualities which France had seen be critically damaged over the previous years. Thus, for the sake of the honour of the French people, and for the sake of holding on to the frayed reins of his own regime, Napoleon approved the measures for war at last. Despite passionate scenes in the French Parliament, Berlin was notified that a state of war now existed between the two nations. Finally, on the 19th of July, 1870, all the diplomatic dancing and veiled threats were over. After nearly five years of tensions, war was commencing at last. It would last less than a year, but its outcome would change the face of Europe and, by extension, the future of the world. Bismarck would surely have been rubbing his hands as almost immediately his plans came to fruition. The smaller German states, threatened by this new French aggression, in the form of the war, had pledged their support and troops for Prussia. The huge railways crisscrossing over the German states rumbled with the rapid movement of German troops to the west, as the soldiers embarked for a popular war in defence of the nation. The railways demonstrated the famous German efficiency, as soldiers were equipped, directed and moved in sync and according to a heavily rehearsed logistical plan. Bismarck knew that the key was speed, give France time to mobilise, and there was a risk of a longer war and possible external involvement. The Prussian army was composed, not of regulars but of conscripts. Service was compulsory for all of the men of military age, and thus Prussia and its north and south German allies could mobilise and field some 1.2 million soldiers in time of war at frightening speed. The sheer number of soldiers available made mass encirclement and the destruction of enemy formations easier and meant that while France scrambled to gather its troops effectively, Prussia and her allies were sending numerous trains full of soldiers their way. Prussia may have had the manpower edge over its French enemy, but if we were to line both nations side by side technologically, we can see a fairly even story of increasing innovation and development unfolding on the continent. French soldiers were equipped with the modern Chassepot rifle, a well-received and popular breech-loading rifle which was in service for French troops by 1866. The French also had their secret weapon, a machine gun similar to that of the American Gatling gun known as the Mitrailleuse. The problem was, though, it was so secret that French soldiers had little time to properly train with it, and furthermore it looked like a cannon, so many French commanders treated it like a cannon, thus negating its obvious advantages of rate of fire and emphasising its disadvantages of short range and immobility. Because of its misuse, the weapon was easily overcome and destroyed by the Prussian artillery. The Prussians were not equipped with the latest in rifle technology, on the other hand, Their rifle, the needle gun, was obsolete after 25 years in service, but the Prussians made up for this with their exemplary use of both tactics and artillery. 
the Prussian Krupp six-pounder dwarfed the rate of fire, accuracy and range of the now outdated French bronze cannons. In addition to this, Prussian military strategy centred on close cooperation with the infantry and artillery. In other words, all parts of the Prussian army, its infantry, cavalry and artillery, moved as one, in scenes that arguably resemble the Blitzkrieg that was to come. French military theory in comparison still saw the use of cannons as a weapon that should be placed far behind the infantry, leading to next to no impact wrought on the German armies they encountered. Even the simple Prussian infantry tactics were better than the French. Prussian strategists, in contrast to their French counterparts, put their faith in the fast-moving and small units of soldiers who could outflank and outmaneuver the enemy with frightening speed. They had demonstrated their effectiveness in this regard against Austria four years previously, and their tactics were what made the Battle of Sadova such a devastating loss for Austria. Even though France knew all about this battle, at least as much as I do, France held its troops close together just like the old style, in the hope that there would be a greater concentration of firepower through this method. They remained largely static then when they were faced with enemy fire, and they rarely moved or broke formation unless to mount ridiculous mass charges. Despite the relative evenness in technology... This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. ...and capabilities then, the real advantage Prussia had over France in this war was its experience from its two previous wars and a willingness to adopt new strategies. As French armies used shiny guns but rusty tactics, the Prussians used modern ideas, old rifles and had a better understanding of artillery. With these facts, the apparent evenness between the two sides disappears, to be replaced by a chasm. French troops were in fact successful in small-scale skirmishes on the outset of the war, but subsequent German action trumped all French moves from then on. The French were defeated at Wissemberg on the 4th of August 1870 in the first major engagement of the war, with French disadvantages becoming painfully obvious as the Prussian forces and their allies completely outclassed them. 
Fighting was harder though during the August the 5th battle at Wirth. This battle actually classed the war as a Franco-German rather than Franco-Prussian one because more than 100,000 troops took part on the battlefield and it was one of the first clashes where troops from various German states, so Prussians, Badeners, Bavarians, Saxons, etc. fought side by side. This is why some historians have called the Battle of Wirth the Cradle of Germany. On the 16th of August, following up with a trifecta, the Battle of Mars La Tour occurred, and it was here that France's countdown to collapse truly began. The French Army of the Rhine, consisting of about 140,000 soldiers, was stationed within the fortress of Metz and had begun moving out in order to link up with French forces at Verdun. But a battalion known as the Prussian Three Corps were sent to intercept. Upon meeting them at a township called Mars La Tour, the Prussians realised that the reports on the French army's size had been drastically downplayed and thus the Prussians were massively outnumbered. Still, the Prussians fought desperately, tenaciously and tirelessly. The township of Mars La Tour and the surrounding countryside was as a result soon transformed into a quagmire of rubble, craters and sections of intense hand-to-hand fighting, which saw a Prussian force of 30,000 commit all they had against the vastly larger French force. The French aim originally had been to break out of Metz, march to Verdun and link up with another army there to pool their resources, but quick thinking on behalf of the Prussians meant that they were only less than halfway there before this Battle of Mars La Tour occurred. Appealing to the old maxim of divide and conquer, it was thought to be better to attempt to eliminate this large army of the Rhine while it was on the move, and out of the safety of the Metz fortress, rather than allow it to link up and pose more problems to the Prussians later on. Further up the line, at Mars La Tour, two other Prussian corps, believing they had located the retreating remnants of the much smaller army of the Meuse, who had been badly bloodied earlier on in the day, attacked. But in fact, these Prussians had attacked a flank of the gigantic army of the Rhine. So this meant that by mid-August, three Prussian divisions were now holding back the entire French army of the Rhine, a critical body of men which was urgently needed elsewhere. General von Alvensleben, who made contact with all the German soldiers in the vicinity, and was in fact holding these three divisions together rather well, knew that he couldn't hold out forever, and he soon began to tire as the French artillery was brought to bear. In response, Alvensleben sent an urgent message up the line for relief by a cavalry detachment. Alvensleben hoped he'd get lucky, and he did. His calls for help were heard by the nearby 12th Cavalry Brigade under the command of Major General Friedrich Wilhelm Adalbert von Brido. Von Brido assessed the situation and, noting that, it will cost what it will, began to organise this ragtag brigade, consisting of the 7th Caressers, 19th Dragoons and 16th Uhlans, a veritable smorgasbord of German cavalry, hailing from all kinds of varied states. The resulting von Brito's death ride, as it became known, was a masterpiece of strategy and deception. These cavalrymen rode out from the Prussian lines at 2 o'clock on the 16th of August 1870, and von Brito used the terrain and gun smoke to mask movements from French observers until the very last moment. 
bursting into view some 1,000 metres from the French lines scattered around Mars Latour, the Prussian cavalry charged into and broke through the major defence of French lines, causing widespread panic and scattering the French soldiers in all directions. When two brigades of French cavalry then attempted to countercharge into Brito's flank and rear, they were partially dispersed by French infantry, who were at this stage shooting at any cavalrymen they could see without discrimination. In Michael Howard's book, entitled The Franco-Prussian War, he describes von Brito's charge as perhaps the last successful cavalry charge in Western European warfare. In terms of its historical significance, Brito's charge gave credence to the claim by the military theorists of the day that cavalry could still play a vital part in war, and this caused cavalry to remain a recognised element of European armies for the next 50 years, with obviously terrible implications for those on top of the horses for the next few generations. I hope you're still with us after all that confusion, but one thing is for sure you're not as confused now as the French were at the Battle of Mars Latour. Suddenly it seemed their entire French army of the Rhine had evaporated in the face of the relentless onslaught and tested strategy of the Prussians and their German allies. The defeat and rout of the French at Mars Latour on the 16th of August meant that whatever remained of the French soldiers retreated into Metz. By capturing the township of Mars Latour and reinforcing it, the Prussians could block any further ambitions of the French garrison at Metz to break out, which meant that everyone in Verdun was by themselves. Then an additional French defeat at Gravelotte forced even more French troops into Metz while the Prussians and their German allies began to tighten their grip on that fortress. And this brings us to Napoleon's situation some days later, a few miles from Metz. He had travelled in the vicinity because he was determined to take matters into his own hands. Since the Prussians had the initiative, and all battles now took place within French territory, it was perhaps inevitable that their army would besiege the fortress where all French soldiery now seemed to reside, at Metz. When Napoleon III learned of this siege of Metz, he decided that enough was enough, and he took command of an army and led his men to relieve it. This army, the Army of Chalon as it became known, was composed of refugees, soldiers retreating from the previous battles, and various town militias. Napoleon marched them as though they were conscript soldiers, and as a consequence they were exhausted by the time they neared battle. Constant skirmishes with German soldiers meant that the inexperienced troops had expended far too much ammunition, while their enemies thrived on a logistical masterclass of railways and guarded supply roads, which ran all the way back to their homeland. Before long, it was learned by the besiegers of Metz that Napoleon and his army of 120,000 men were only a few miles away. His element of surprise, gone up in smoke, Napoleon decided to go for broke and attack the Prussians with his ragtag army. It didn't go particularly well, and the French lost the Battle of Beaumont at the end of August 1870, forcing them to retreat 50 kilometres to the west to a town called Sedan. Napoleon had this idea that he could fortify Sedan and use it to entrap the prowling German units into their doom, but Sedan had been run through in the weeks before by German soldiers already, and in the running skirmishes that had characterised August 1870, where Napoleon had tried to attack, German soldiers had actually filed out of Sedan to counterattack him. 
What this confusion meant was simply that the Persians knew the region fairly well, or at least they knew it fairly well enough to know where to place their artillery if they wanted to batter the town of Sedan into submission. With Napoleon and his men holed up in the super unsafe Sedan, he began to realise this problem. Within a few days he was informed by his aides that he was surrounded, and some of his commanding officers recommended surrender. The Prussians and their allies at this stage controlled the countryside, and they had pushed so far into the French interior that the nearest reinforcements were too far away and too preoccupied to come to their aid. As Napoleon pondered his next move in the last days of August 1870, the Prussians lined up their cannons. On the 1st of September 1870, while attempting to push through the German lines before they became too well entrenched, and in efforts to retreat further into France and protect Paris, Napoleon managed to smack into the advancing Prussian armies, and the Battle of Sedan began somewhat haphazardly. The battle basically consisted of French troops attempting to break out, but repeatedly having to retreat under incessant Prussian artillery fire. Remember those Krupp six-pounders I told you about? Well, they were used here with horrendous efficiency. The space within and around Sedan became smaller and smaller, but Napoleon's army, to their credit, kept on fighting. When the 3rd Cavalry Charge failed to break the Prussian line, Napoleon was shattered. And when the Prussians brought up yet more six-pounders, he knew it was all over. Napoleon surrendered. He surrendered what remained of his army to the Prussian king, and resigned himself to his fate. With the end of Napoleon, the end of Metz was guaranteed. Having learned of the destruction of the army and the emperor that had sought to relieve them, Metz surrendered on the 27th of October that year with the loss of 180,000 French soldiers. The war was now effectively over, the heart had been torn out of France, but it would drag on for another awful eight months. German armies marched into Paris and the city collapsed on the 28th of January, 1871. Later that year, on May the 10th, 1871, the Treaty of Frankfurt was signed between France and Prussia. Napoleon would live on in exile, in agony, and see his country collapse, but he would not live much longer after that. He would die three years later. Allegedly, his final words are said to have been about the Battle of Sedan, the battle whose results still haunted him. He asked his doctor, Henri, were you at Sedan? Yes, your majesty, his doctor replied. We were not cowards at Sedan, were we? Bismarck fanboy that I admittedly am, I still can't help but feel sorry for Napoleon. France was propelled into more anarchy with the defeat in the war. It was forced to pay a huge sum of money to Prussia, and Napoleon watched as his worst fears were realised. Prussia was no longer just Prussia. It was now a single nation, a single people, and ruled by a single monarch. It was Germany. On January 18, 1871, ten days before the collapse of Paris, every German monarch from every German principality, municipality and state converged on the Palace of Versailles. In the Hall of Mirrors within the palace, the place where Louis XIV, among other French monarchs, once roamed, they proclaimed the Prussian King Wilhelm I as the first ever emperor of a united German state. 
Germany was now the largest, strongest state in Europe. If the 1866 Peace of Prague had changed Europe, the Treaty of Frankfurt transformed it. The balance of power in Europe was altered so that France no longer spearheaded its direction. Germany did. France could never act in the future without considering its neighbour to the east, a neighbour which towered over France in every sense. For all his ingenuity, though, and for all his later efforts to ensure peace, Bismarck did make a fatal error in the peacemaking of the Franco-Prussian War. This moment could have been used to ensure that Europe would be led in peace by Germany or in war by Germany, and Bismarck, through some unfortunate choices, chose war. Though historians have since portrayed him as hesitant, there's no denying that the annexation of Alsace-Lorraine, as per the terms of the Franco-Prussian Peace Treaty, all but guaranteed that Franco-German hostility would be at the centre of all future European dealings, and that such hostility would almost certainly result in a future war. In a sense, it was one of Bismarck's greatest blunders, because with this treatment of France, Bismarck knew that he would have to keep France isolated in Europe to ensure peace. Bismarck, fortunately, was up to the task, and he would prove for the next 20 years that he was capable of this, as he drew major European powers such as Russia, Austria and Italy into alliances with Germany, successfully isolating France and maintaining peace within Europe. Unfortunately for Europe and the world, though, Otto von Bismarck could not live forever. Only he was capable of maintaining the web of systems that this war set in place, and upon his dismissal in 1890 by Wilhelm II, everyone's favourite emperor, the wheels began turning in a different direction, towards a destiny which was arguably finally realised in 1914. In closing, I'd ask you to consider this. In William Weir's book, 50 Battles That Changed the World, Weir puts battles in his book in order from 1 to 50, according to which one he believes has the most impact. The Franco-Prussian War is placed at 49, in other words, second last. I know there are some really vital battles out there and really important wars with really important results, but looking at all the events which followed the war and which occurred basically because of this war, I would ask you, the listener, what position they believe the Franco-Prussian War should hold on the list. With that being said, I shall take my leave. Thank you for listening to this remastered multi-part look at the Franco-Prussian War. I hope you enjoyed this trip down memory lane and that you're ready for the next remastered installment, which is probably already out, to be quite honest. My name is Zach Twomley. Thanks very much for listening, and I will see you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.